0: there's always something that we want the day that as a society we say we're good we're happy maybe we stop evolving and advancing question mark and that's it that's the show folks we're good (laughs) (laughs) this podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends skippy and doodles that like to debate about investing content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Happy day. My brother, what's up? Uh, spring is here, man. I think like officially, officially, officially I think it's here. Yeah, it's I look at the 10-day because I measure my life now in 10-day weather forecasts. And i looked at that 10 day and it looks like clear and sunny and that gets me jotted.
1: you know when uh we were last in hawaii uh last month we looked at the 10 day and it was like cloudy and miserable it, literally looking for weeks and we show up and it was like maybe partly cloudy sunny and 72 all days and every like uber we got in the driver would be like this is freaking terrible weather, man. I can, <laughs> it's winter. I, I
0: cannot put up. This is the worst winter I've ever had. They're dressed so, up like the Night King from Game of Thrones. like, winter's coming. No, it's it's, it's, it's,
1: it's, all, uh, it's all relative, man. It's all relative. Uh, all right. Uh, I need your thoughts on, I think, one of the most important topics here. Okay. Some people call it the hedonic treadmill. Ooh. But the way we demonstrate this, Douglas, is uh, we go to a study run by a Harvard professor. He talked to millionaires, so this is net worth, and he asked them how much more money they would need to be a 10 on the happiness scale, right? It's like so 10 whatever. Yep. I, wow. I go to Dougal's, Dougal's, wait, how are you feeling on the happiness scale today? And you're like, I don't know, seven. And I'm like, hey, listen, how much cash do you have to deposit in your bank account right now to get you to a 10? That's That's the way this question works. So
0: start with people worth a can million I, bucks. Can I answer that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. For you, I think it'd be 10 bucks, Because it takes a lot for you to part with your money. So if you, like, gave me $10, it would bring me a menstrual. Oh, that meant I must have done something. You
1: haven't, my, you haven't seen my spending habits recently. All right? We got to pull that. <laughs> okay. guy. You,
0: you were just talking about Hawaii. That's true. All right, uh, go ahead. Sorry. I interrupted.
1: Okay. So we went to the guy worth a million bucks, guy or gal, and said, how much do you need? What do you think he said, Beagles? Uh, $1.5 million additional. He said get additional. He said give me a, give me another million. Okay? Okay. We went to his brother across the street. He's worth 2 million bucks. How much did he need?
0: I see where this is going.
1: <laughs> 2 he, he million. Said dollars. Two, he said 2 million. <laughs> yeah, 3 million. Said 3 million. 5 million. I'm worth 5 million bucks. Uh, all those all those lowly millionaires down there only worth a million bucks. They only needed 2 million bucks to be happy. I'm worth More than double a 10 on their happiness scale. You Do do you know what I need to be happy? Five million bucks. An additional five million bucks. So I need 10 million total. Went to the guy worth 10 million bucks. Also said double. This is simplified. It's dumbed down. Isn't this amazing? This gets me every time. And I'm not saying I don't fall for it. Because I absolutely do. Yeah. But this is your brain in like hunter survivor mode telling you you need more food for the winter man like whatever you have is not enough because you don't know how bad the
0: coming winter is humanity man fascinating i do think it's really and it it hits me every time too i'm gonna i'm gonna uh i'm gonna analogize this in a way that probably won't make sense and then i'll say something that might make sense and so maybe in something and there'll be interesting it makes me think about the lindy effect like some weird version of the lindy effect Remember the Lindy effect? We talked about it a couple of years ago. Yeah, but I forgot it. Give me a refresher. Yeah. Simplest way to think about the Lindy effect is that you can predict how long something will last by how long it's already lasted. So you'll say if you, if you show up and there was a building that's 10 years old, then it's most likely it'll last another 10 years. So I, this is a weird view, but I was kind of just thinking, I wonder if, if that's similar for like human desire. Where it's like, what if you imagine whatever you have accumulated, then you kind of predict I can accumulate that same much that same amount again, and if happiness is reality minus expectations, then yeah, I can kind of see it. It's like I don't know, it's a, it's a weird view on that. Uh, so that's that's one thing that comes to mind. The other thing that comes to mind is I. So if you think about the positive side, let me say this, and it goes back to something we talked about uh, last week when we were mentioning the beginning of infinity. There's the negative side to this, but maybe this is also how humanity evolves and uses knowledge and creativity to continue to advance because there's always something that we want. The day that as a society, we say, we're good, we're happy, maybe we stop evolving and advancing? Question mark? And that's it. That's the show, folks. We're good. See, <laughs> see you next week. No, but what I what yeah. I don't like about it though. Let me get what I don't like about it though is when you say I have a million bucks, I need two million, so therefore I'm to buy options, or therefore I'm going to throw all of my million on in crypto. That's like the bad side from the investing standpoint. If you want to risk it all to get that double up.
1: Yeah, that's fair. I mean, there's this study is just how people think. I don't know that there's necessarily action from this. And what the action might be is going to vary based on expertise and skill sets, right? Most of your people that are worth 10 million bucks didn't, well, didn't get there
0: by trading options. That's pretty obvious, right? I mean, from what we talked about a few months ago, it seems like most of the people that are in, I don't know about 10 million, but they're in that millionaire status were like small business owners, right? Wasn't that they own car washes (laughs) or something like that? Um, so, and no. and
1: speaking of which uh quick shout out booker this week that really that i really liked uh hbr guide to buying a small business also known in skippy speak as the value investor's guide to micro micro caps check it micro, out folks. micro 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 talking business is less than 10 million bucks man it's a great place to play <laughs> there are deals caps. out there to be had you're gonna pay three to four times Basically margin, operating margin. They use EBITDA, which I hate. And we've talked about that on a
0: previous show. Really good book, though. Pick it up. Appreciate that, my friend. I'm a it if that's cool with you. Um, I'm a it if it's not cool with you. I want to reach into the fishbowl. And there's this exciting piece of literature. Like, I'm talking, I'm not talking Jane Eyre, right? I'm not talking something classic like that. I'm talking more classic than that. Although apparently what you said was this is like spit and hot fire. This is not a great piece of literature, by the way. It's a boring research paper. But I am trying to hype it up for y'all. It's called "Long-Term Shareholder Returns: Evidence from Sixty-Four Thousand Global Stocks." One topic that we've discussed a couple times on here is the idea that a large percentage of returns historically come from a very small percentage of public stock market equities. So we've discussed that point. That's also a point that's hit on in this paper. So that's not necessarily new. The methodology that this paper tried to take, or did take, right, with the spin they took on it was they looked globally. So a lot of times when we're looking at at things like that, we're looking at one market, usually the United States of America. This one looked at monthly returns for 63,785 stocks, that traded in the U.S. and the non-U.S. from 1990 to 2020, across 42 stock markets, 26 in the "quote unquote" developed nation category, 16 in the "quote unquote" undeveloped or developing category. So that's the premise. Thoughts, questions on that before I give a couple of the high lizzles? No, go for it. Yeah, the way they chose these markets, just to give you a little context, they looked at markets with the largest average GDP. During that that thirty year period, um, there were a couple they excluded because they didn't have enough returns, and they added a couple because of economic prominence, specifically New Zealand and Singapore. Okay, so when you look across the sixty three thousand seven hundred eighty five firms during that period, the total stock market wealth creation was seventy five point seven trillion dollars, with a trill, trillion with a trill, and you look at me confused. You don't understand. Seventy five point seven. Yeah, yeah. The five firms with the largest wealth creation during that period accounted for 10.3% of global net wealth creation. This was Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, and Tencent. Another big one. Tencent. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. And another one. <laughs> another one. Another um, one. The best performing 159 firms out of that 64,000 roughly was 0.25%, right? 0.25% of the total was half. So 0.25% of firms accounted for half net wealth creation. So it's the same thing, right, we've seen before, right? It's small percent uh, account for a large percent of the total. Okay. So interesting, I think. I know there was some uh, methodology and research, like, criticism on it, but interesting nonetheless. I'm going to quiz you on a couple things, if that's cool. Unless sure. do you want to you give some reaction to the overall research paper before you get quizzed on? Every time I look at
1: one of these studies, this is going to sound like the stupidest thing I've ever said which might be a record, but it's always fascinated me that your average or sometimes median stock loses money. Like it just, that just sticks. Mathematically. It's just funny. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it kind of has to, when you have that long fat tail on the positive side, but it's like, if you're literally throwing darts, you're probably going to lose a few bucks over an extended period of time with
0: the median stock. It's fascinating. Truth be told. What was the number one company from a wealth creation standpoint in the United States during that period of time?
1: This isn't one of those monster
0: beverage ones, is it? No, it's more obvious. No. I'll just go Apple. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I think it also might be in the world, but they didn't rank it that way. So I'm just going to but I know it's the US, but I'm pretty sure it's the world. It was 2.74% of global wealth creation during that period. One one company, uh, which was... 2.6 2.6 billion, no, 2.6 <laughs> 2. million million dollars. Is that 2.6 trillion? <laughs> <Is> that what... <laughs> I think so. Um, yeah, so that's Apple. So it was Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Alphabet, and Tesla were in the US. If you look globally, it was those uh, like minus Tesla, add in Tencent. This is through 2020, if y'all recall. So this this takes out. Yeah. A- uh, some of the other stuff but the the US companies it's kind of it's it's interesting these are not necessarily fully surprising but it's interesting some of the companies that show up so like the ones we just talked about not surprising but then you throw in like procter gamble uh johnson and johnson right there are some of these that you might you may not necessarily think would fall into that list during this period but it's it's the hotness okay
1: the amazing uh, thing about apple is like um effectively they sell cell phones and computers Now, they're diversifying their revenue streams, and that's a fascinating case study. But it just speaks to margins, right? The amount of profit they make per cell phone they sell, per computer they make, is drastically different than all the other competitors that also sell cell phones and laptops and barely scrape by. Like, didn't create the most wealth of any
0: company in the world. I'm going to compound it too. I'm going to compound what you just said because fully agree that is brilliance. And where I believe I'm going to go out on a limb here, not that big of a limb, it's a pretty thick branch I'm about to walk out on, is that Apple has one of the best revenue models ever because of what you said also compounded with the fact that it's a hardware subscription business. That is insane. A hardware subscription business. Here's what I mean by that. I'm saying you're buying this whatever, I think back, if you go 15 years ago, let's call it, it was subsidized $200 phone. Now it's like a thousand dollar phone basically. And you're buying that every two to three years. Like it's an expensive product with fat margins. You're buying every couple of years computer, not that often, but still it's effectively a hardware subscription business. Plus all this other stuff. It's like sick, sickening. It's brilliance. Another part of the quiz. Last part for you. Okay. You ready? Are you laughing at me? Okay. yeah. So the United States of America represented 27% of all of the firms, the companies that were in this study. What percent of gross wealth creation do you think the United States represented? 27% of companies, what percent of gross wealth? 56%. Eh, Come on. Was that your real guess? It's obviously 53%. Come on. No, that was good. That was actually a really good guess. All right. What do you think China Was China was six point two percent. I'm gonna give you points in this one. Six point two. This ends
1: in 2020, though. Ends in 2020,
0: though. So it's like that's a tough one. Um, I'll go like nine percent, six point five percent. So it was kind of right in line. Yeah, right in line. Generally speaking, when I look across the countries, so they because they list out all the countries and you can do the calculation to to look at these ratios. Most of the countries didn't like over create right wealth, um, given the number of of firms they have. and But there were like a couple that stood out, but they're usually small. So like the Netherlands and Switzerland were like two that I saw that I went, oh, they outcreated themselves. But the Netherlands, 0.5% of companies, 1.2% of gross wealth. Right, But otherwise, for the most part, it's you have a lot of companies and each company isn't creating that much or in total, they're not creating that much. That's kind of interesting. The US just dominated from that's why they have 53%. So it's an interesting study, I think. I'm not going to deep dive and criticize all the methodologies. It kind of says the same thing we've we've seen before. But looking at it globally, I think it's a nice little attempt. Yeah. Well, that's why
1: I own international stocks like the U.S. stock performance cannot continue like that. It's absolutely bonkers. You identified it as an outlier of someone that created basically twice as much wealth as they represented Um, and they're the only ones. So it's coming down. People get ready. So, Douglas, I'm gonna switch gears, and first, I'm gonna tell you why I tried to end the podcast early. This last week was like earnings week, and I thought you were gonna talk a bunch of nonsense, trying to mm-hmm. overreact to these quarterly figures.
0: Oh, you? Know, I like I like
1: earnings weeks, earnings times overall. The Meta story, and I'm talking you, Facebook. You mean the story right?
0: about Meta or the, the, the story meta? about Meta? Okay,
1: yeah. absolutely fascinating. What they did, what that stock has done in the last 12 months in terms of going from 300 something to 90 to 88 <laughs> and, and then back to 240 plus all as zuckerberg has a hissy fit about the metaverse is like fascinating they they have 3 billion daily active users like these numbers are mind-boggling
0: staggering yeah i mean it's what a, a third of the world every day
1: well more, I mean, they're saying uh, estimates for population is only eight billion, right? And I think there's still like two or three billion that doesn't have access to the internet.
0: Yeah, so half of the potential market, I guess, then uses their product every day. Yeah, it's a thing, and we don't know where this story is going to end, right? Uh, because it's just in the the stock market overall, as we talked about, it's just like in some kind of a messy middle, you know, flipping back and forth. But I do think one thing I'll I'll give um, some credit for too early is that for good reason, people talk about how it's hard to like turn big ships like that. He turned that ship twice with the quicks, right? Negatively <laughs> like, and positively. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's kind of wild. <laughs> Excuse me. I get all choked up when I think about it. It's kind of wild, um, yeah. So anyway, that's you went in early because of because of earnings week. So yeah,
1: yeah. All right. So that's interesting. What I what I think is the most interesting thing in the world on the investment front right now is um, commercial real estate in San Francisco. Yeah, I really do. Uh, constant headlines. Everyone has an opinion. I don't really have an opinion, but I'm I'm starting to watch it closely. And the uh, Wall Street Journal. This is Peter Grant um, came out this week with an article on 350 California Street, which Dougals, this isn't true, but I'm pretty sure it's the building that Will Smith (laughs) stands in front of for that one. What's that where he like pursuit of happiness? Yeah, I think it's the pursuit of happiness building. Okay, could be I'm pretty sure it is. So as of 2009, uh, according to office broker estimates, this building was estimated to be worth 300 million dollars 22 stories glass and stone tower california oh, streets right in the it. action great spot man can you imagine <laughs> 2009 like trying to buy this thing this would be the spot yeah I mean, so that's coming out them. coming out the gfc right the global financial crisis yep and and 2009 you have salesforce meta Ooh. twitter you name oh, it every company you could me. ever want to be it's all right there. Well, those companies are typically still have a San Francisco presence, but they're trying to get out of their leases or at least sublet. They are estimating, and I think this sale will happen in the next couple of months that this building will sell for 60 million dollars. When it sells for Wait, 60 million dollars. 300
0: think, to 60? Was that 300 to 60? Is that what he said?
1: 300 to 60. Yep. They think the new purchaser might have to put 50 million bucks in the thing just to make it attractive enough for tenants and then you have all the city dynamics of more crime a wow. non vibrant downtown I don't know the yeah. right way to say that but like just oh, absolutely man. fascinating so I am closely watching this because there's some very intriguing yes. investments yes in and talking reads talking- yeah I'm talking reads
0: yeah but a you few more stats tingly. and then I'll be quiet. You get me right? tingly when you when you talk about REITs. You get me tingly. It's
1: <laughs> great. As of uh, 2019, that's what we're talking about. Vacancy of San Francisco office space was running around 5%. So, okay. So, not, not high. That graph is up and to the right. It's at 30% right now with no signs of slowing down. But what's interesting, back at that time, you'd pay about 80 bucks a square foot. Yeah. for real estate and it peaked in early 2020 uh, closer to 92 bucks a square feet it's yeah. currently only trending about 75 bucks a square feet i mean bring this down Douglas. the reason it's at 75 bucks per square foot in my opinion these people still are servicing their old debt so they they probably can't charge less than that in aggregate but like when three hundred California sh- uh, Street turns over, and it sells for sixty million instead of three hundred million, you might be able to charge fifty bucks per square feet. I mean, or less. So I'm looking for the whole thing to reset and see what
0: that does to uh, vacancy rates. Man, fascinating. Interesting. To watch. That is fascinating. Oh, that's really fascinating, and it's it it uh it goes to, I think the point around. So on this podcast, this here podcast, Skippy and Dougal's talk investing. In case you weren't curious, which podcast you're listening to? On this here podcast, we talk about a really wide range of things, right? And we joke sometimes. We're like, "Did we even talk about investing?" But all of this stuff impacts not all of it, maybe not the bees in California, but most of this stuff impacts investing, right? Because we this this is at least what I what I pick up out of the conversations that we end up having is you take these micro points. And then it, you zoom out and you go, okay, so what does that mean for what's happening in the macro environment? And this is one building in San Francisco. And then, but then you, you extrapolate that. Like, so what does that mean for real estate overall? I think it's interesting. I'm, I'm, I have not pulled the trigger on any REITs yet. And I may not in the near term, but I'm starting to watch too. And I'm glad you, you're raising this stuff because it's going to be very, very interesting from a research recommendation perspective over the coming. I'll call it year, at least to watch and see what happens. I love it. I mean, it's a dumpster fire, and there's, um, <laughs> there's, I,
1: I'm fascinated by dumpster fires. So there's Kilroy Realty Corporation, which is KRC, it's a REIT, primarily focused in LA, San Francisco, and Austin. And the mm. thing I love, if you work through uh, their 10K or any REITs 10K, they usually tell you, Exactly which building they own, exactly which tenant that building has, how long the lease runs. Like it's fascinating. You can go through and see which property Salesforce holds. And then you can make determination if you want to get to this level of minutiae of what Salesforce is going to do with that exact office. And you can predict some cash flows. Like it's just the, like I said, I think it's the most interesting space. And then you can easily tie it to the investment front if you want to do the work. Now For 99.9% of the people, well, so for 95% of the people, if you do the work, you're going to underperform the market. And for 99.9% of the people, if you do the work, even if you outperform the market, once you take into account the value of your time to actually do that work, you probably end up underperforming the market. But as a thought experiment, man, it's really fun.
0: Really fun. Really fun. All right, I'm going to fishbowl it, reach in and talk about fraud. We've hit on some fraud stories over over the time period. We talked about Elizabeth Holmes, right? We talked about Aussie Media about a year ago. We've hit on some. There was this New York Times article this past week that is saying the fake it till you make it ethos has now gone too far. because uh, hey what, what they're that's saying what is I say. Yes, it did. It yeah, absolutely <laughs> did. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, you heard it. So you heard it from the Times. Now you heard it from the Skippity Doo-Das. The summary of this is saying that when times are good right? People are kind of looking the other way. Like You just fund it, fund it, fund it, look the other way. As long as it looks up to the right, you give a thumbs up and you're good to go. When a downturn hits, which has happened in tech, now people are like, oh, that's not great. And the evidence of this, they just said just in the past couple of weeks before this article came out, they named that it's the, the CEO of the financial aid startup, Frank, was arrested for falsifying customer data. Uh, Rishi Shah, the co-founder of Outcome Health was found guilty of defrauding customers. Elizabeth Holmes is now going to jail. Uh, Carlos Watson, back in February, was the founder of Aussie Media that we talked about last year. Christopher Kirchner, the founder of Slink, right? Anyway, it just kept listing. It was like, if you look over the past few months, like now it's one person after another. This is happening, right? And part of the reason that they stated this is what I said. When times are good, people look the other way. Times are bad. Now you're... in it but they also said because times got so good and people were raising so much money that the types of investors that were coming into these companies were different so they were like venture capitalists might be more likely to look the other way because they also like there's more money on the line down the road for them like they or sorry there's less money that they've necessarily put in and more potential money down the road so like they'll lose the whatever millions of dollars now for the potential to make more money later that they can further invest in whether it's the individual or whatever it might be with their reputation. But when you have these bigger, like late stage investors that are coming in, it could be uh, pension funds, it could just be like um, like parts of companies that do venture that are coming in. They get a little bit more diligence um, and they care more about the big dollars they're putting in now, so that's another reason. So I found this to be particularly interesting. And I'm gonna end this with a, with a quote here so alfred lin um he's an investor at sequoia capital he was also in the he's of zappos fame back in the day but he was someone we talked about because of sequoia that invested in ftx remember when we were like how did people <laughs> like these really prominent investors who are known for all this stuff how the heck do they get into ftx so Sequoia Capital put $150 million into FTX, which is one we didn't even name, or I didn't name when I was going through the other ones before, but that's obviously one. And what he said in an event back in January when talking about the crypto stuff that was happening, he goes, it's not that we made the investment. So he's saying, like, it's not the issue that we made the investment. It's the year and a half working relationship afterwards, (laughs) and that I still didn't see it. That is difficult. Yeah, Fully agree. Right. Because you can get pitched, you can get swirled and world. That's not a phrase, but you could get swirled and world and decide to throw $150 million in, which is a big investment, but you can do that. But then when you're working with the person and there's still a blind eye, that's what you do need to go and look at what your biases might have been, right? Your confirmation bias, whatever it might be, et cetera. So I enjoyed that. I enjoyed that a lot. Okay. So that, that's that New York Times article that I thought was interesting. Then I'm gonna go just for a quick little aside because it made me chuck chuck that's chuckling for all of you guys was i saw this fortune article going back to the founder of frank so do you know the story of a frank from last year
1: i don't know the story of frank at all but yeah. i'm gonna jump in with one thing since you're in a transition point you mentioned zappos you know tony shea i think is how you pronounce his last yeah. name. The founder r.i.p do you do you read my goodness he moved to park city utah was trying to create his own village and ended up addicted to uh oh that gas from like huffing yeah canisters, oxide, like whipped cream yeah. canisters whip, whip, yeah whatever it is yeah whipping yeah whipping uh, there's a article in the new york times i believe just absolutely saddening fascinating he yeah. started believing everything should be done on commission which led all his business colleagues to start taking advantage of his wealth because if you sold him something for 10 million bucks you'd get a million bucks regardless of whatever garbage he just paid 10 million bucks for crazy story
0: yeah it's it's a sad story if you read delivering happiness which was his book about creating zappos very well by title happy story and then you go behind the scenes on how he died i mean it's yeah it's Anyway, you all can go out uh, look it up. Maybe we'll throw it on the Substack on Monday. Okay, so yeah, so
1: tell me about Frank. Okay, short story:
0: Frank was a financial aid startup, or maybe still is. I don't know if they fully declared bankruptcy or if they're still independent. Whatever they are, or sorry, um, if they're still owned by J.P. Morgan. But so Frank was a financial aid startup. Got bought by J.P. Morgan last year for 175 million dollars, and then it was discovered that of their 4.2 million users. 4 million of those were not real, which is a very large percentage. I can't do the math, but it's a large percentage. <laughs> um, Another thing I have to jump
1: in with here this is why, if you use my investing in approach where, rather than JP Morgan's in this case, <laughs> you can get past a lot of this fraud because if you actually make people put money, like positive cash flow in their bank account, it's really hard. To make up like ninety percent of your users, because then ninety percent of the money doesn't
0: actually flow down to you. You heard it here first, people. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right. So th- this is discovered. J.P. Morgan is upset, and they're like, "Okay, well, upset." I would say probably upset and embarrassed. Most likely is is what happened here. I don't really
1: think they're upset. Yeah, they're. I mean, the money doesn't really matter to them. They're
0: just kind of like, yeah. hmm, "This is not ideal." So the CEO. Frank. She is now found out, allegedly found out, right? What does she do with the, I think it was $28 million that she had in JP Morgan because of the sale? I mean, the right thing to do is buy crypto. I'm not sure if that's what she did. That's the right thing to do, but she didn't do that. She actually she actually took it one step removed. She said, I got to get my money out of JP Morgan because they're accusing me of all this fraud and who knows we're going to do my money. So she transferred the money, maybe not all of it, but the bulk, it seems, from J.P. Morgan to Signature Bank. And if anyone's <laughs> been paying attention over the last couple months, Signature Bank is no longer a bank. Um, <laughs> but I think uh, her, her assets ended up getting seized by the U.S. government. So it's more, it's more just humorous that that is what she did <laughs> in the end. It's, it's wonderful. So just a little aside. So from, from one fraudster to another. You know, it's, it's kind of like the the situation she found herself in.
1: <laughs> she took all the money out of J.P. Morgan because she thought if she defrauded, that's what you said, right? J.P. Morgan, the signature bank. She thought if she defrauded uh, them, they might actually like repossess
0: her capital. She, she was saying, I didn't do what you, she, I mean, I think anyway, she's saying, I didn't do what you all think I'm going to do, but you're going to try and pull some funny business on my money. So, yes, let me move it to this other bank. Amazing. <laughs> oh, What great. a world. It's great. All right. I got one last thing in the fishbowl, and it's by our boy Jason Swag, Wall Street Journal, called Picking a Stock for 2048. We've, we've talked on here about uh, like high school and college stock challenges. Let's just call them, right? Where they're trying to teach people at the stock market, so they say, buy this stock for three months. See what happens, you know, whatever. And we've we discussed like with that, you're kind of teaching that the stock market is a casino or a short term game. Maybe that's not your intention, but, you know, that's that's the way that the class is designed. So uh, there's someone that we are acquainted with, right? We're by acquainted with, I mean, like we know of famous investor, solid track record name Thomas Gaynor, chief executive of Markle Corporation. And so this is similar, it's like a, A mini berkshire hathaway in a way like he invests the money that their um that this organization has right it's an insurance company okay so he decided to establish this different kind of stock challenge with two different schools uh one school is delaware state and one school is virginia and what these kids are doing there are 29 students and they are deciding on portfolios of like 15 stocks, and they're going to invest in them. And those portfolios will be frozen for 25 years. Yeah, love it. So
1: one of the key parts of education typically is um, hands-on experience is better than theoretical experience. So you see a lot of universities working in all areas, call it engineering or journalism, right? To get their students hands-on experience. And I fully applaud that. But what has happened in these investing classes is they try and give hands-on experience and say, oh, this class lasts two and a half months. So we're going to run a a real live investing study based on two and a half months, which is a coin flip and is absolutely teaching, teaching the wrong principles, this is a right approach. Now it's not going to the performance here. The winner is not going to going to try to their grade because it can't, but at least they got the time horizon right
0: exactly and it's real money that's that's like another difference between so this is like this is real dollars and the, what's happening with those dollars is because it's frozen for 25 years after 25 years whatever the class assuming these schools are still around and everything and it's <laughs> but anyway whatever the the class of that in that 26 year half the money is going to scholarships for the school and the other half those new students will invest in another uh, another group of stocks and so they're doing this every year so like year one it's their year zero i'll call it the 26th year people will do it the next year people will invest and then it's year whatever 27 right so you, yeah. you can see it's like yep. a rolling thing it's a pretty cool idea i like it um and i i think it's you know like like you just said it's at least from a mindset perspective a change in perspective if nothing else these students won't they won't get the grade. They're not going to get the money from it, right? There's, there's like no real benefit to them. Tang, sorry, no tangible benefit to them. But the mindset is important. One of the students, to demonstrate that, one of the students, uh, Jacob Slagle, said, it really forces you to think of, of businesses in a different way. Can it survive 25 years? Like even that simple thought, and it goes back to uh, a few episodes ago, we were talking about Charlie Munger, I think it was Charlie Munger or Buffett, I can't remember which one, right? But going over to their house on Saturdays and and saying, like, how do you think about investing in stocks? And it, it was looking at, will, it, will this business be around in a few years? Will it be able to outperform in a few years? Will it be around in 25 years? And that's a way that a lot of the newer investors don't necessarily think about, right? When they're thinking about stocks and not companies. It's 25 years from now. And you start to you really start to slice and dice the organizations that you will be willing to put your money in if that's what you think about it.
1: Yeah. It's great. I'm a fan. Loving it. Loving it. Got anything else? No, that's a wrap. So hit us up, skippydoogles at gmail.com for listener mail. All things skippy at skippydoogles.com. Premium subscriptions on supercast really help the show. You get the podcast a day or two early. Um, sometimes you get premium drops. I think we might have one of those coming up in the next month or two, uh, regardless of our personal portfolios or how we think about juicy investing deals. Um, so that's uh, Superca- SkippyDougals.supercast.com. And uh, thanks for hanging out with us.
0: Appreciate y'all.